This is a relay project. Seriously starts now. Here's Sapria and Ryan. Hey, hey, it's Wednesday, September 7th, and you're listening to Seriously with Sapria and Ryan. I am Sapria DeVetti in Toronto. I'm Ryan Jesperson in Edmonton. Good morning, my friend. Good morning. You know, coming off a, a long weekend, it's the official start to fall into summer. Usually you and I would be making, um, you know, a little bit of chit chat over that, but it just seems uh, a little bit out of place given, you know, just how heavy uh, I think the country has felt over the last few days with the uh, news out of Saskatchewan. Yeah, this and this is kind of, a, I suppose, a, a unique position to be in you and I uh, doing a weekly show as well, where we gather our thoughts about a story, or as we say, we'll cut through the noise of a story. This is an ongoing and developing one that the nation's keeping an eye on. At, at the time we're talking, uh, the manhunt continues for one of the accused in this stabbing spree, Sapria, that's claimed the lives of at least 10 innocent victims, at least 18 more injured, and of course an entire nation absolutely shocked at what went down at the James Smith Cree Nation in nearby Weldon, Saskatchewan as well. Yeah, so to your point, you know, my, as of the recording of this podcast, uh, Miles Sanderson uh, is still at large. He is expected to be injured and maybe looking for medical attention. Uh, he's got a long, long criminal record, several, you know, prior assault uh, convictions. And this has been one issue, I think, that's been coming up quite a bit, which is, you know, if he's got a criminal record that dates back, you know, two decades, he's got a bunch of convictions, 59 convictions that include, you know, property crimes, as well as crimes against other people like assaults. Um, why was this guy out? Yeah, I mean, on the on the record, you know, the the suspect not considered a risk by the parole board. So shows a a report a decision dated back on February 1st that found that he would, quote, not present an undue risk. The report concluded that freeing him would, quote, contribute to the protection of society by facilitating his reintegration. So seven months after that report is compiled, this man is charged uh, at large at, as at the time we're speaking, but charged in the deaths of uh, multiple people in one of the worst uh, mass crime sprees in Canadian history. It's got a lot of people talking as well uh, about some of the epidemics and some of the very serious issues uh, that are uh, very present and prevalent on reserves across the country. And that's due to comments that have been made by community members at the James Smith Cree Nation that have been talking to reporters uh, that, quite frankly, Sapria, have drawn one of the worst assignments in all of news coverage. Yeah, no, uh, no kidding. Um, you know, to your point, this does open up a, a pretty meaningful and substantive conversation that we should be having about, you know, mental health addictions and supports, as well as like the larger conversation about, um, you know, the criminal justice system and how we can, in fact, better in- reintegrate people into society. And, you know, to your point about this being one of the worst crimes and mass killing sprees in Canadian history, I think the international outpouring of support really, um, you know, showed that uh, uh, there was a ton of uh, world leaders um, expressing solidarity and, you know, expressing their sympathies. And you just you don't really see that all that all that too often here. Yeah. Why, why is it do you think that? I mean, the, the royal family and and presidents and prime ministers and chancellors, like you said, heads of state 
have have shared their thoughts and prayers, so to speak, uh, with Canadians and Indigenous people in Canada. Why do you think it's this one that's resonated? I think it's the sheer scale um, and, quite frankly, likely the brutality of the crime itself. Um, you know, a, a stabbing spree going uh, for that long, the fact that, you know, they're still at large or this man is still at large. Um, I, I think all of that probably uh, plays in. And, you know, I think we do tend to have, rightly or wrongly, a bit of a reputation on the international stage as like, Canada being like meek and, you know, mild mannered that we're essentially toast. Like nobody has strong opinions about us one way or another. Mm. My phone lit up as did millions of others. I'm sure as that emergency alert system kicked in. And uh, I think it probably goes without saying, you know, we, we've just finished this uh, mass casualty commission, or at least Canadians have been paying close attention to that. The, the, the review, the public inquiry, so to speak, uh, following of course, that, that tragic mass shooting in Nova Scotia, uh, back in April of 2020, do you think it's fair to suggest that when the dust has settled on this, when the arrest has been made or 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 when the accused has been tracked down by police, uh, once the, the funerals have occurred, I hate to put it that way, um, and once some time has passed and, and law enforcement starts to look back on this, political officials will no doubt have their own reasons to want to take a look at this as well, and the public will have some expectations that a conversation happens. Uh, perhaps an inquiry. Uh, do you think that we'll stack this up potentially against the tragedy in, no in Nova Scotia as an opportunity to examine how the RCMP and other police forces worked together or how the public was notified? Yeah, I think so. And I think if we don't, it would be a, a kind of a missed opportunity. And I would say that already it seems as though there were some lessons learned, at least in terms of how the emergency alert system was was rolled out this time around and compared to uh, what happened in Nova Scotia, right? So um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've got to look into how we better inform the public in, you know, these developing situations. We have an emergency alert system, um, you know, it goes directly to our phones. Uh, we should be using that um, in these situations. Before Miles Sanderson's brother, Damien, uh, was discovered deceased on the James Smith Green Nation, police had reason to believe that the two accused were in Regina. And this was right around the time that thousands and thousands of people were preparing to attend the Labor Day Classic, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I saw some people seem to be you know, sharing their thoughts online, shocked that the game was continuing. Uh, other people not shocked at all. Several, of course, uh, police officials, including Regina Police Service, indicating that there would be extra security precautions at that football game. While it was assumed that those two were at large in Regina, were you surprised that yes. the game continued? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe the game continued, actually. Like, I understand it's like, to your point, it happens every year. It's a big thing. But if nothing else, out of respect for the victims and the tragedy that had just occurred, even if it wasn't necessarily a pressing security risk at that game itself, um, I think that's what you do um, when, you know, a, one of the worst mass killing sprees has occurred in the country. Yeah. Lots to be learned from this, but as we said earlier, this is still what they might call a developing or a dynamic story and, and one that we and millions of others are, are obviously keeping an eye on. You know, one of the top stories across the country continues to be our growing health care crisis, and this opens up an interesting question. What do you do when the system is woefully understaffed, Sapria, and you desperately need to hire people? 
Yeah, you know, and that situation isn't exactly as uh, far off as we may think. And we've had situations where it can lead you to a rush of hiring and you not actually, you know, you're not verifying the credentials as well as you should. And we get into a situation like we did in British Columbia in 2021, where you have a nurse that is working with forged credentials. And when you're understaffed, you're up against the crunch, you know, verifying those credentials and providing that best in-class training is actually even more important. And if you need help with training in a regulated industry, you need to know about We Know Training. We Know Training is not just a standard LMS platform. They specialize in high stakes training for associations, regulators, governments, and credentialing bodies with the highest degree of quality and trust. To give you just a few examples, they work with credentialing partners like hunter educators and licensing organizations, you know, medical associations, uh, training for licensed professionals like uh, real estate insurance and the financial planning industry, and many more highly regulated industry where high quality training really matters. Since 2005, We Know Training has helped hundreds of North American associations and organizations deliver the highest quality learning and training testing solutions. Their platform, their learner verification technology, make sure you're credentialing the right people with a high degree of trust. If you want a training partner who will provide high stakes training without the hassle, give We Know Training a call. You can learn more on their website at weknowtraining.ca. The lead. All right, so at the risk of pissing off the entirety of the internet. Um, the summer is over, right? Uh, um, and fall is upon us. I was hoping for right? something much more controversial. No, no, no. I mean, that, this is somewhat controversial. People do get pissed when you say that summer's over as of uh, Labor Day. Um, but it is, you know? It's so, you know, aside from pumpkin spice lattes and cozy sweaters and whatever else is going on, um, we've got uh, a packed political session when the House resumes on, on September 19th. And this week also, the Liberals are holding their cabinet retreat right and it's been reported that much of their focus as well as uh it, you know what they're going to be discussing and trying to come up with is going to be economy uh, economic issues affordability issues that's what they're really going to hone in on and the conservatives are going to be announcing you know who won their leadership race um this weekend on on september 10th that's been so, such an exciting horse race hey just just back and forth neck and neck just who's neck taking neck. the lead lead changes who's it gonna be everybody's wondering yeah um well you know to your point about the horse race if you're looking at some of the federal numbers here um and we've got recent polling from abacus data i mean the conservatives and the liberals are basically you know neck and neck as they head back into the political session and you know i hate polls this far out from an election i don't think they necessarily give us a whole lot of insight but it is worth noting that we're essentially going into the next political session of it being a tie game, right? Yeah, so and so anybody listening on the podcast, it, basically this is Abacus data numbers and it shows uh, the conservatives, uh, what was it, at 33% here support, the liberals at 32% support. That both drops them down one percentage point from the last election. We'll call it a, a wash. And the NDP pulling about 12 points back at 19%. Are you surprised by that? No, I mean, they're always hovering around that sort of number. And, I think it's you pretty know, decent for them. It is. It is. Yeah. And that's that's not a knock on them. No. And I think, you know, Jagmeet Singh, for his part, is generally um, one of the leaders that has the, more, you know, has better approval ratings or has better net positive ratings, um, but can't really seem to translate that into wider party support for some reason. Yeah, there's not been a lot of distance. If you think back, and, and obviously we don't have all the numbers in front of us, but if you were to look at polling month to month or quarter to quarter over the last five or six years, 
you wouldn't see a ton of distance between the liberals and the conservatives, right? Like what's been the max, like six or seven points max? Yeah. And like, if at that, right. Like I, so I, I agree it has been tight and you know, this does raise the question and to your, what I assume was a sarcastic comment about the conservative leadership race being an exciting horse race. Um, once Pierre Polyev is announced the winner, um, and I don't make me eat my words, but please. what if uh, he's not, okay. No, what if he is, he's the yeah. leader, he's the heir apparent. Yeah. So I don't know, like, how do the liberals go into a fall session um, knowing that, you know, he's going to be the leader? They have, for the most part, kind of held their fire on him. Right. They haven't really done a lot of negative attack ads or hasn't been a lot of engagement with uh, the videos or the tweets or whatever else he's he's putting out there. Um, so how important do you think it is for the liberals to like come out of the gate swinging and define Pierre Polyev and this, you know, conservative party under him um, before they get to do it themselves? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just it's a whole new animal. You know, it, it feels like uh, if there if there's one thing I'll consistently bring to this show, Sapria, it's <laughs> sports metaphors and in particular hockey. And let's say a team defeats another team in, in a hard-fought seven-game series. But, but then that team that lost to the eventual champions completely retools. You know, new head coach, new starting center, maybe a new goaltender, something like that. The, the champions, if they want to defend, will have to come to a better understanding of what their opponent looks like now. And I feel like the conservatives will completely reinvent themselves with Pierre Polyev as a leader. This isn't uh, something like moving from Andrew Shear to Aaron O'Toole, where I don't see a ton of discernible difference. Uh, Pierre Polyev's entire M.O., uh, his, his entire approach to politics, and, and quite frankly, his ability to thrust and parry in the House and to, I mean, he will have uh, an absolute heyday during question period. And, and I think the, liber the liberals better get ready because I think that they're going to have their hands full with the style that Pierre Polyev brings to the table. I think he could make him look stupid in a hurry from a soundbite perspective. I'm not talking yeah. about substance. I'm talking about soundbites. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I would add to that by just saying that I think the liberals have to get a lot smarter about the way that they respond to Pierre Polyev and either not getting goaded into responding to every single attack that there is um, and explaining, you know, in plain language, a lot more clearly and a lot more transparently about why they take issue with some of the things that, you know, the Conservative Party or Pierre Polyev is going to be um, putting out there. And I think, you know, a very good example of this is um, if you're talking about affordability, okay, let's just use that as an example. This is what the Liberals are focusing on in terms of their cabinet retreat. It's top of mind for most voters. Um, I think you pin, you know, Pierre Polyev into a corner. It's like, okay, well, once we deliver on dental care, which we know the liberals are going to have to, if they want this NDP deal yeah. to, to stick. Right. Um, as well as like pharmacare and, you know, their, their current um, deal with the provinces on childcare, what would a conservative party do with that? Um, are they going to roll all that back? Like it's really hard to take something away from people once they've already, they already have it. Right. Um, if you're talking about the next pandemic, right, this this iteration of the conservative party is basically all in on freedom convoy stuff. They're anti 
uh, mandates, whether that's masks or, or vaccines, um, how does a conservative government handle the next pandemic with Pierre Polyev at the helm? Like, this is a legit question um, that I think I- the liberals can sort of work on um, in terms of shaping how the public sort of perceives um, Pierre and the conservatives going forward. Yeah, to stay what might be obvious as well, I'll be really curious to see what happens to that conservative front bench or to some of the more notable names within the conservative party who, who might not entirely align with the direction that Pierre Polyev's taking this party in, right? And so I wonder whether we'll see some, I'm not going to say mutiny. I don't think it's to that point at all. And we've seen a lot of those MPs right now come out and support Pierre Polyev because, of course, they want to hitch their wagon to the winning horse. Uh, but at the same time, you know, folks that have that have been relatively outspoken, even some that have taken a prominent role outside his campaign, I'm thinking of off the top of my head, Michelle Rempel-Garner, you wonder what MPs like that might do under a Pierre Polyev leadership. We'll see. There's still some runway between now or September 10th when that leader's announced and the next federal election. Lots of time for Canadians to get a sense of what Pierre Polyev brings from the position of leader. They've never seen him in that position before. They've seen him as a foot soldier. They've seen him as a very effective uh, opposition critic, but never before as a leader. And I'm curious to see not what it does just across the aisle, but also within the Conservative Party. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Michelle Rempel Garner because she's definitely an interesting figure. And to your point, you know, she did have a a role in another campaign and has been very outspoken about things that the conservatives have gotten wrong in the in the past. Right. Like the barbaric cultural practices uh, tip line and, you know, going hard on the niqab ban in the 2015 election, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm actually a little bit more interested in, you know, what happens to somebody like Leslin Lewis. So mm. if you have somebody who's out there, um, you know, saying the quiet part loud, essentially, like all the time, um, as a leader, what do you do in terms of like your caucus discipline? Um, and do you actually discipline somebody like Leslie Lewis or do you put her, you know, really front and center and get her um, rallying parts of the you know, de- demo that they think that they need, like that PPC vote. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you were to take uh, the Pierre Polyev supporters and the Leslin Lewis supporters, and then if you pulled one of those two candidates out of this race, I bet you a majority of those camps would vote for the other candidate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if Pierre Polyev wasn't here, I think a lot of his supporters would vote for Dr. Lewis. And if she wasn't in the race, I bet you a ton of her supporters would vote for either Roman Baber or Pierre Polyev. So I would think my gut tells me that considering who Mr. Polyev courted uh, to win this race, that's not yet done, but for all intents and purposes, it is. I would suspect he better be careful about alienating figures like Dr. Leslin Lewis, who represent that social conservative element of the party. I think it'll be a completely different scenario under a Jean Charest leadership to state the obvious. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's 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 pretty much what I think. And, you know, if you're talking about alienating um, demo like demographics of people to you were pointing out, like the Leslie Lewis voters, Robin Baber voters, whatever, that's all true. Right. But I'm more curious about like alienating the suburban park mom vote. Right. Or like the suburban, you know, uncle and auntie vote, you know, Um, in terms of uh, how the party ends up trying to form government. Um, you can rally as many PPC types as you want, but if they're, they don't exist in large enough numbers in the writings that the conservatives need, um, it doesn't necessarily 
get you anywhere further than you already are. You're just kind of like treading water. And I think a part of this that a lot of, you know, the political talking heads in this country don't tend to understand because of, you know, their own demographic blind spots is that if you are um, a person, you're racialized, you're a person of color, and you think some of the rhetoric is putting your safety and security at risk, right? Um, it doesn't matter what the party is going to do for the economy. If you're worried about walking into a mosque or a gurdwara or a mandir and, you know, they need extra security and you're worried about sending your your kid that wears like a parka or hijab to school because they're going to get, you know, bullied or they're going to. So like all of this, I think, is is worth thinking about. And I'm not saying that that's what the conservatives are necessarily going to do, but I think it's something worth thinking about Um as you know, they crown a new leader. Safe to say that the amount of time between now and the next federal election might not just help the governing party. It might help the official opposition as well. It might help the conservatives. It gives them enough time, uh, Pierre Polyev and his strategists, to swing back to relatively normal. You know what I'm saying? With, with, yeah. with, with a little more time, uh, COVID becomes less of an issue. With a little more time, Canadians forget how angry they were about the Ottawa occupation, how how disgusted some of them were with the politicians that were cozying up. With a little more time... Which, Pierre by Polyev, the way, is like the majority of Canadians, eh? It's oh, like 70% of, of Canadians. Of were, course. Yeah. But, this is, but this is always the case. In leadership races or general elections, is the majority of people aren't always the people that show up to the polls. Sometimes it's the fringes or the most angry or or the most passionate, or the most partisan. And to win elections, uh, to state the obvious, the parties are going to have to to get out the vote of just the average ordinary person. And, and it'll be interesting to see who can captivate that vote most quickly. Also, there's this. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know, because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And they're working right now as I speak in state after state to give power to decide elections in America to partisans and cronies, empowering election deniers to undermine democracy itself. So that was uh, President of the United States, Joe Biden, coming out last week in a speech uh, as pro-democracy. And this was somehow <laughs> positioned as being a partisan thing. Look, I think the optics of him delivering that speech with the Marines in the backdrop, right, like is suboptimal for all sorts of reasons. You don't necessarily want to politicize the, you know, armed forces, whatever uh, level of the armed forces that may be. But I, I don't know, like that ship has sailed somewhat right with trump um and do i you just think, think it, do you th just inter do you think yeah. that he did do you think that politicizes the military no i don't actually them there as, as no. set dressing i don't think so i don't but i i know that it's not necessarily super common to do prior to trump so yeah. i will defer to american experts on on that point i just feel like um, it's more of an american thing than anywhere else it's like an american russian and chinese thing 
to, to, to deliver speeches on aircraft carriers, uh, yeah. to deliver speeches with, with tanks in the background. Just, I guess, maybe kind of a reminder uh, that we the United States can yeah. kick your ass. Yeah. Is, you know what I mean? But, but I guess maybe I felt like they, they, they were black for people listening on the podcast, the, the those, the, the guard, the military guard in the, in the back, they're, they're, their faces are shadowed over. It's very dramatic lighting. It's it, it feels a little bit less politicized. Some of the commentary I saw, and it was almost felt like, you know, Joe Biden was sitting in between two, you know, soldiers, two Navy SEALs, you know, in their camel with their faces painted, something like that, or, 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 or I don't know, soldiers wearing elephants on their T-shirts. <laughs> just, I don't know. I, or maybe I got the parties wrong on that one, didn't I? Yeah, donkeys was the what I was donkey. looking for. Yeah. I don't know. I think donkey. Oh, shit. I, don't, I, don't, I, blew I actually don't know either. I don't know either. Um, well, whatever. <laughs> Works out. <laughs> don't worry. We'll cut this part out of the podcast. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, but look, all this to say, uh, I think if we're talking about this in the context of like being pro-democracy, it's obvious that being pro-democracy isn't, a partisan stance, right? Um, and I think it's important that in those remarks, uh, Biden sort of went out of his way to delineate and differentiate between MAGA Republicans, um, who we refer to as being semi-fascist, and regular mainstream Republicans. And I don't know if that works in terms of being able to reach out to those so-called regular Republicans for the midterms that are coming up. But it is worth noting that he did make that difference. And I think in the you know Canadian context, we should be grateful for all sorts of reasons. Insofar as you know, we don't have the same level of the destruction of our norms, right? We also have much uh, better, in my opinion, um, protection of things like elections. Like we don't have partisans that are presiding over the integrity of our elections, right? It's like an independent uh, body. When we're redistricting vote votes and ridings and things like that, um, it's not a, a partisan body that that is doing that. It's all done independently. Um, so in you're that saying respect, not as much gerrymandering in Canada. No. I, yeah, there's not as much gerrymandering in Canada. Is that going to get me in trouble? I'm just, I, I'm just thinking. No, I, I, I don't know. I just think that everybody knows their own neck of the woods the best. And I, I just remember the the last municipal elections that we had in the province of Alberta. Several big cities, including Calgary and Edmonton, uh, voting in new city councils, ultimately voting in new mayors. And there was someone behind the controls of the elections Alberta Twitter account that was getting. Pretty snarky and undeniably partisan. And Elections Alberta had to switch into damage control mode as people were at the polls. And it was a total disaster. Uh, I'm not comparing it to the United States and certainly not comparing it to some of the voter suppression that we see. By the way, Sapria, thankfully, we've got the World Wide Web here at our studios. I I can let you know (laughs) it's the donkey for Democrats. It's the elephant for Republicans, though, on this one. I think I come across as the biggest donkey of all. No, never. Um, Can you believe that people have to actually come out and implicitly state that they are pro-democracy these days? That used to be a given. It was a joke. It was a throwaway. You'd say, well, this is a democracy after all. Now it's almost like people need to remind their fellow citizens that it is. Yeah, well, look, if we want to talk about the Canadian context, we do have to do some of that reminding, don't we? I mean, look, conservatives here didn't actively collude with people that were trying to subvert democracy. They were just actively cheering on the people who did it and brought them coffee, right? Um, But we do still need to be pro-democracy here. And I think more than that, we have to watch out about 
how some of these things, whether we're talking about democracy or whether we're talking about, you know, uh, preserving the integrity of our own domestic affairs and, and elections from foreign interference or disinformation, we can't let that become a, a partisan thing. And I do worry about that happening, um, particularly as we, you know, move forward on this debate about how we go about regulating um, online harms in this yeah. country. Yeah, no kidding, Canada. So consider this your heads up. Seriously? All right, Supriya, so we shine the spotlight on a story that makes us say seriously every week, and I this is not, despite what people may think, several episodes in, not intended to be a perpetual highlight of Alberta politics, but yet here we are again. So yeah, Ryan, I mean, to your point, we don't mean this to be a Duncan Alberta segment, but look, this is what Brian Jean just came up with this week. Um, under Brian Jean-led government, there will be no mandatory vaccines. He's talking about changing the Public Health Act, you know, to explicitly say that they're not going to be subject to mandatory vaccinations. And it's like, okay, it's pretty bold to come out as pro-preventable disease in this day and age, but why not go for it? Yeah, so we could welcome back polio and measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria. Uh, in all seriousness, though, you have to wonder what percentage of the general population would love to see policy like this implemented, Sabria? 3%, 4 maybe 5 what kind of message I, you, does this send to the rest of the country? You tell me. I don't know. Because like, I, I think the vast majority of the country is, I would say, is in the majority of being pro-vaccine. But I don't know. What is it like in Alberta? I don't know. It's a race to the bottom <laughs> in that leadership race. We'll find out soon who Alberta's next premier will be, and we'll have plenty to say about that. Hey, in the meantime, thanks for checking out this week's episode of Seriously. We appreciate everybody that subscribes wherever you can get your podcast. You can subscribe on YouTube, too. And make sure you tell your friends. Yeah, follow us on Instagram at SeriouslyPod. Follow us on Twitter at Supriya and Ryan. Check out the website, SeriouslyPod.com. And as always, send us emails, love or hate, talk at SeriouslyPod.com. We'll see you next Wednesday. Seriously is hosted by Supriya Dwavedi and Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Executive Producer, Josh Dunford. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Norlego. General Manager, Katie Cook-Shivers. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Voiceover by me, Tanji. Seriously is a Relay Project. For more, check out SeriouslyPod.com.